I'm Abby Kenny, and you are listening to Upzoned. everyone. Thanks for listening to another episode of Upzoned, a show where we take one big story from the news each week that touches the Strong Towns conversation and we upzone it. We talk about it in depth. I'm Abby Kinney, an urban planner out of Kansas City with Gould Evans. And today I am once again joined by Chuck Marone, the CEO and founder of Strong Towns. How are you doing today, Chuck? Hey, Abby. Uh, pretty fantastic. I mean, it's been gorgeous here in Minnesota. We've we've been hitting 90 degrees a couple times in the last week. And for us, that is like Amazon equator level of heat. So, <laughs> uh, you know, that that's that's like so oppressively hot. It's uh, we're, we're begging for like, a, a, you know, a cool breeze to come in. But uh, yeah, we've been out on the lake and uh, enjoying it, and it's been a lot of fun. Sounds like a prototypical Fourth of July. Uh -huh. for, yeah, that that sounds nice. Well, so the article that we will be discussing today is something that is also prototypical of Americans. It is entitled "The Dying Mall's New Lease on Life: Apartments," written by Patrick Sisson at Bloomberg City Lab. The article basically presents an existing trend that has caught new momentum during the coronavirus pandemic of retrofitting dying mall sites into something new. Malls, of course, have been dying a kind of slow death around the country since the Great Depression, maybe even before then. Now, the economic fallout of the coronavirus pandemic has reawakened a sense of urgency to transform America's unviable retail space. Several estimates indicate that up to a third of malls may be vacant as early as next year, leaving communities around the country with massive, soon-to-be-blighted buildings and seas of empty asphalt parking lots that they make up acres and acres of now-unviable land. The Trump administration, specifically Ben Carson from the Department of Housing and Urban Redevelopment, has proposed federal support for turning empty retail spaces and malls into affordable housing as part of a coronavirus stimulus package. Chuck, I know that you have talked about and written about how we might address dying malls in the past. I might be hanging out around too many architects, but I have so many immediate <laughs> questions about the feasibility of using um, a mall for housing, considering things like building codes and construction quality. To me, these sites actually seem to be in need of like a complete overhaul, complete redevelopment. But I'm curious what your perspective on this proposal is and considering the urgency of the coronavirus pandemic and housing accessibility needs, do you see this as a good use of federal stimulus funds? Um, no. I mean, it, <laughs> it's funny. I started to laugh when you said I, bet I hang around with too many architects because I know, know exactly what you mean. This is one of those, and it has been for a long time, one of those things that architects really get all a flutter about you, right? Like they get just all a buzz, like, oh my gosh, we can take something uh, hideous and we can, you know, change this and change this. And 
it's a little bit like, you know, they're going back to the glory days in design, you know, their undergraduate design program where they get to be very creative and, and, you know, and I've worked with architects a lot in the past and, you know, don't mean to burst anyone's bubble who's going into architecture now, but, you know, most architects, I think, go to school thinking they're going to build some beautiful monumental structure. And when they find out that, you know, they're actually like reviewing HVAC plans on a Arby's, they have that midlife crisis. This kind of gives that creativity an outlet, you know, like I can take this, this thing and, and redo it. I think there's more that it says about us psychologically as humans than it actually says about us from a development standpoint. I wrote about the Akron Hills Mall a few years ago in a, in a piece that got me in a lot of trouble with Akron, actually. If you've ever been to Akron, you can imagine uh, this, this is a city that is struggling in many, many ways, many ways that are obvious and that could use just like a tiny bit of, of improvement here and there. Like if they really humbled themselves to work in small increments instead of just massive projects, they could make a, a huge amount of improvement very, very quickly for a lot of people. But their mall sits on the highway. Everybody, you know, drives by it regularly. Everybody who commutes in from that way drives by it. It's not just a failed mall as in like, you know, the parking lot's empty and the stores are closed up. It's actually like collapsing. This was a couple of years ago. You know, it was collapsing and uh, trees growing up in the middle of it. So it like signals failure. And they're doing everything they can. And in fact, you know, gave huge subsidies to Amazon to come in and, and raise the site and redo it. And it was really like a, a psychological thing. Here's this big billboard telling us every day that we're a failure, that we failed, that we did something and it didn't work. And there's almost like this compulsion that we have with malls to go back and say, well, we, we're this far. We've invested this much. We've done, you know, all this stuff to get it here. And so we can't let this thing fail. We can't let it fall apart. I saw this in my own hometown where, you know, our big mall anchor tenant failed. Their company went into bankruptcy and they closed it. And it was abject panic and basically like all hands on deck, whatever it takes, we're going to prop this mall up and get this going. That to me, from a rational standpoint, makes no sense. From a, a human psychological standpoint, I get it. These things, like, we put so much of like our our essence and our being and our worth into you know what this was supposed to be that to watch it fail and fall apart is just emotionally very hard to do. Well, and it's interesting to me that we've kind of tacked on the concept of affordable housing onto the propping up of mall sites. It seems to me that affordable housing has become somewhat of a buzzword that gets tacked on to boondoggles like this to appease dissent and gain support. While housing access is absolutely a critical subject that we must work to address, I happen to believe that it actually does matter where it's located. Malls are overwhelmingly located in places that are unwalkable and disconnected regionally without a robust public transportation network or a personal vehicle. The Center for Neighborhood Technology has coined the Housing Plus Transportation Index with the idea that the cost of living involves a lot more than just housing and the cost of a car is often overlooked in these conversations around affordability. 
So in a rational world, it would make more sense to focus on housing affordability and access and to more options and contexts that would you know, have the existing transit networks and existing walkability. It seems that we're actually starting off with the problem of the dying malls and then tacking affordable housing onto the solution rather than starting with housing access as a problem and then working to approach it in a multifaceted way that is really geared towards empowerment in existing neighborhoods. To me, this is a very top-down approach to housing access that might, you know, have some role to play. Maybe federal housing has a role to play in the overall discussion, but it's being focused in a location that just does not seem rational. And just to add to that, something that also struck me when reading this article was how the idea around leading with residential was framed. In the past, malls and suburban retail centers were developed around the idea of having a strong retail anchor that would lead the viability of the project. This is a very modern approach to building cities. And so the reframing of what leads viability is interesting and I guess encouraging to me in this article. What many of us have come to understand is that we have thousands of years of city building that was much more focused on creating villages, which is a pattern that leads with residential by building communities first and then letting essentially commercial uses, amenities respond to the local needs. And I think that's what a bottom-up solution more so looks like. And we can see the relative success of that model in places all around the world. And, you know, most notably for our listeners in the U.S. and Canada, neighborhoods that were built largely before 1950. And so I think their their notion of repurposing malls needs to consider residential as the primary anchor is 100% valid. But it's important to remember that this is not a new concept. And we have places that were already built this way that have been starved for capital for decades. So while I'm all for redeveloping mall sites into more lovable places, I'm a little on the fence about whether or not these malls really deserve to be bailed out through federal subsidy. I think you're right on. And I mean, I I think that analysis is brilliant. If we look at the end result we're trying to get to here, can we just name it? It's a neighborhood, right? We're trying to get to a neighborhood. So I think if we understand just approaching this concept that what we're trying to get to is a neighborhood, I think it's important first to acknowledge what we did in the post-war era. You know, with, with modern zoning, we took and we separated housing from commercial. And we said these are two separate things in two separate places. And commercial then has grown from being fine-grained into something very huge, very big. And it's big because that's the way we finance it. That's the way we get money to do this. So when you hear Ben Carson talking about bailing out malls and giving money to malls and subsidies to malls, what you should really hear is a call to continue to pump money into big. We have big developers, big corporations, big financing mechanisms, and those systems are I've said many times, dinosaurs like watching the asteroid approaching. And essentially what we're doing here is we're, we're bailing out big. If we acknowledge that the goal was to create neighborhoods, instead of starting with the big dinosaur and retrofitting it 
and trying to make it into a neighborhood that, by the way, you know, and you said this perfectly, if it's ultimately successful, it will be this oasis of neighborhood out in the middle of nowhere, because that's where we build malls. Or we could start with places where we actually have neighborhoods already. Uh, They're just residential and kind of denuded of commercial and then naturally allow fine grain neighborhood scale commercial to like find its way back into these neighborhoods. That would require nuance, bottom up, different financing mechanisms. It, it would require local banks instead of, you know, US Bank and Wells Fargo. It would require like a whole bunch of different things that we seem completely unable to even consider today. And so you get, I think, this coming together of all the forces. That, that really need to die and go away. You know, all the forces of big trying to prop itself up. Now looking at like the malls as kind of the next, the next thing we can take on and, and sell as the, like, the big top-down project we can do that, hey, poor people, this will help you too. And I, yeah, that wrapping of the poor and housing and all this, it's part of the marketing brochure to be sure. But as an operative policy, come on, are we going to fall for that again and again and again? I really hope not. There's a concept that you've talked about before that comes from James Howard Kunstler that he coined the psychology of previous investment. And this is the idea that because we've already invested financially and emotionally into a place or a project, that its existence is therefore valid and must be saved. What I think is kind of overlooked in that theory is that we have all of these places that were basically sacrificed in pursuit of growth during the era of suburban expansion. Our society essentially made the choice, both directly and implicitly, to opt for malls and retail centers comprised of large corporate, too-big-to-fail businesses built on a model of hyper-efficiency. This resulted in us, the consumers, being able to purchase a consistent supply of goods at a lower cost. So this development model is a staple in American suburbs, and it's even kind of romanticized to an extent. So it doesn't surprise me too much that people really don't want to see malls fail. What we forget is that during the era of suburbanization and mall building, The local business economy was massively disrupted, and these small businesses were not bailed out, despite the fact that they're more likely to put money back into the community and, you know, benefit the community in ways that are not just financial. When this ecosystem disappears, our money funnels into these corporate chains and moves out of the community largely. And in the case of malls, we've consolidated our physical source of goods into one massive building. I guess the question that I have is why do we mourn the loss of a mall when we don't mourn the loss of businesses and communities that were sacrificed in the name of this expansion? And if we're going to deficit spend in response to coronavirus, why don't we instead focus on spending that money in a way that cultivates a human scale economy? And why don't we double down on a model that has worked for thousands of years? I don't know as we do lament the mall. The, the loss of the mall. I, I think we do, like I said in the beginning, I think we do as a cultural, it's a point of failure. But I agree with you. You know, we walked away from our core downtowns. We walked away from those economic ecosystems. And 
Well, there were some among us who mourned that at the time, and there were some among us who you pointed out problems. You know, I wasn't alive back then. I've read this. You know, I've I've read the conversations in my community. I've talked to people who were there. This was looked at as progress. This was progress. This was advancement. This was creating more efficient markets and better markets. This was, you know, giving people more options. We we wrapped all of this in this narrative of America becoming a better country, a better place. I think there's two ironies here today that we're not fully confronting as a society. The first is just the recognition that people actually do prefer the fine-grained. And you see this because all these malls now are trying to recreate the town square experience. They're trying to become like a caricature, like a facsimile of what a main street would be. And so, you know, instead of having one mega coffee shop, you've got a bunch of little coffee shops. Instead of having, uh, you know, one big Best Buy big box store, you've got now the the little like niche market thing. And oh, we've got the Apple store over here and, and the little Best Buy shop over here. And, you know, we can order and deliver stuff to you. So you got all the access of uh, this great mega company, but you get the experience that you want. So we, in a sense, acknowledge that humans are scaled to a human habitat, to a human environment, which is not mega big. Yet, you know, we're stuck with, for the time being, with this mega big financing system. And so we're being asked to deliver fine grain, but we're being asked to deliver it with like tools that can only work at the large scale. I think the other irony here you know, beyond the fact that we've recognized this preference is that, you know, because we can only work at a large scale, our ability to respond to this is just clumsy. It is not kind of the nuanced, broadly participatory, bottom-up, resilient kind of way of doing things. We default back to those systems and and we say, all right, uh, deliver us this new product now. As if, you know, Main Street was something that was delivered by like the one oligarch in town, as opposed to something that was co-created by everybody within the place. I'm optimistic because I feel like this is in a sense, like the dying gasps of a model that just needs to go away. And the only question for us as communities is, is how much of our remaining essence are we going to put into propping this up? Yet, I felt that same thing back in 2008, and uh, <laughs> I was proven wrong over the subsequent decade. And so I guess it remains to be seen on whether this new fad is something we'll be able to uh, to conjure up or whether uh, we'll be forced to deal with reality before we're able to do this on a broad scale. Well, in considering all the space that these malls make up, I actually think that there's some really exciting opportunities for approaching it in a different way and actually just redeveloping that land. Even if it is a long-term strategy, I think that there are ways to reuse all the space. But if we're willing to be disciplined and patient, there are better ways to do it. And that could actually, you know, create a sense of place and a sense of ownership and maybe even create opportunities for people who are low income to gain some type of ownership. I think there's a lot of creative approaches that could be explored and how to reuse the land. So I've looked at what Monty Anderson, uh, incremental developer down in Duncanville, 
uh, Texas outside of Dallas. I, I've looked at what he has done with a small mall site and he's done exactly that. There's a lot now of local ownership, startup entrepreneurs, people who could never get a hold in like a class A or class B even mall space are now, you know, finding a home to get started in this thing that he has been redeveloping with small base commercial with residential in conjunction with a neighborhood. I'm inspired by Monty, but I've always had lingering doubts that we could do this at scale, at the scale that would need to happen to actually make viable use of this space. Malls are not well constructed. You know, you kind of started with that. And I think it's an important point to kind of come back to is that if you look at the actual construction of a mall or a big box store or a strip mall or even like a modern franchise restaurant or quite frankly, uh, you know, a modern uh, sheetrock house, these are not things that are well constructed. They're not things that are designed to endure. I made the point to my kids this week because we we're talking about the school in town. There was a school site built in the 1970s that they're renovating. And they're tearing down a 1930s elementary school in the process. And I actually made the point. I said, if we just walked away from both of these, like walked away from them for 30 years and then came back to them, did nothing, just like boarded up the site and walked away. The 1930s school, I mean, you could take a power washer, wash it down, uh, update the electronics on the inside, and you'd be good to go. I mean, that building would be fine. It would be standing there. It would need some work, but it would be okay. That 1970s school would be completely gutted. It would, be, it would have fallen apart. The roof would have caved in. The walls would have fallen down. It would be a disaster. None of this stuff, from a construction standpoint, is really worth salvaging. And so, you know, I question our capacity to do it at the scale that we would need to, to be able to like actually make this work in the places we built. And then is that really what we want to do? I mean, is that really the place where we put our energies? I, I don't think it is. Well, I don't think so either. I actually, you know, happen to think that it might just be a better idea to demolish the buildings, put in, you know, streets as, as appropriate make a plan, replat, and start to think about how you actually start to reuse the, the actual land and redevelop on it. I, I don't know that these buildings are worth salvaging. And then again, I'm hanging out with too many architects, but I'm wondering if, you know, residential building code would even make it feasible for people to be living in those buildings. I, I have a hard time believing that the maintenance of those buildings has been kept up at the level that it would need to over all these years. Right. Or just abandon the site. I do think that our cities, you know, physically need to contract and actually will be forced to. And I think the question is, it, what's the mechanism? I, I wrote in chapter six of my book that I, I think in the next decade, uh, there will be an industry of salvage in a sense that goes into sites like these and says, okay, you know, before we demo this, what can we make use of? Are, are there copper wires here we can pull out? Are there, you know, HVAC systems we can recycle? What is here that has value that we can take out and reuse in this project of kind of fixing and patching together uh, our denuded cities? I think that will become an industry. There's a modest industry of this right now, but I think it will be expanded on because I think a lot of these places are just going to be abandoned. I think they're going to 
we will walk away from them and there is not going to be the you know without the top down without the hud subsidies without the wall street capital without you know that money being poured into the system there's no way you know the city of brainerd the citizens private or public or or some combination of the two rescue our dying mall that is you just you know that capital's not here and it would be a bad investment there's no way the city of kansas city prioritizes that amongst all the other things that are on the table needing you know urgent needs needing to be done so the quicker we get this on the better off we're going to be yeah i'm not going to disagree with you there because i do think that there is going to be some contraction and you've talked about triage in the past that there are going to be sites that we are going to need the discipline to walk away from if it's just not viable to you know waste our resources on and let's all remember that this is uh, federal deficit spending so this is money that we are bringing into existence and it would do us all at best to use it in a productive way that actually helps people so we oh, have Abby, reached- you're so old-fashioned <laughs> you're so old-fashioned <laughs> <laughs> we just make money now. Like we don't need to make productive use of it. That that is so cool. Yeah. We could just print money and if you know, if somebody wants to come dig a hole in my backyard and refill it, we could spend it that way too. So we have reached the end of our time today, but before we conclude, it is time for the down zone, which is the part of this show where we get to share anything that we have been listening to, watching, anything that's been capturing our attention this week. So Chuck, what have you been up to lately? I never dreamt that I would be a boat a boat person. I grew up in Minnesota. It's, I live here now. It's a land of 10,000 lakes. I know lots of people with boats. Yeah, I grew up, my, my parents had a boat. I never thought that I would be a boat person. And I'm not sure why. We uh, are not taking a summer vacation. And my wife and my two teenage daughters said, Dad, um, let's take the money we save for vacation and buy a boat. And I'm like, that sounds like a terrible idea. And then they started sending me like, you know, here's a boat, here's a boat, here's a boat. And I was shocked because I thought it would be way more expensive than it is. So we bought a boat and I went and picked it up on Monday and we went out on Wednesday of this week. And uh, I got to tell you, it's kind of weird to be a boat person, but it's also kind of fun. Do you know what boat stands for? No. Bust out another thousand. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm a little nervous about that. I did get, it's a, it's a jet boat and I actually bought this particular boat, not only because it was really affordable and it didn't have a propeller, which, um, you know, my kids want to do a lot of skiing and swimming and stuff. And so I was like, yeah, I'd rather not deal with that. But I also wanted one that I thought I had half a chance to actually fix myself. And so I bought a 1997 Sugar Sands Tango jet boat and uh, it's got an inboard engine and I looked at it. I'm like, I think I could actually hack this thing somewhat. So I'm hoping to avoid the thousands of dollars that I, that I have, you know, is pretty notorious for people who own boats, but um, we'll see. We will see. You'll have to come to Minnesota sometime and we'll, uh, we'll take a fun boat ride. Yeah. Well, I love boats and I don't know if you know this, but Missouri is also a state with a ton of lakes. And I feel like there's like a lake culture here. Like 
everybody knows somebody who has a lake house to go to. Sure. Um, you kind of want to be the person with the friend who has a lake house and not the person yeah. with the lake house. <laughs> my, 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 my good buddy up the street said, uh, thank you. He said, I've always wanted to have a friend who owned a boat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's definitely the case. And I, I've actually been thinking of getting a kayak, which is non-motorized. So that's something that I've been kind of, I've been thinking about it for years, but I haven't, I haven't pulled the trigger on it and actually found one, but it, I would love to have a kayak and I'm close to the Missouri river. So it would be fun to, to bring it down that I actually have followed up finally on one of your recommendations. I'm sorry to say that it is not Sherlock because our TV actually got destroyed a little while ago during a power surge. Yes, we had a power surge. So now we don't have a TV, which is completely fine actually. But I am probably about halfway through Colin Woodard's new book called Union, The Struggle to Forge the Story of United States Nationhood. And wow, this is such a great book. And, you know, like we talked about a few weeks ago, this book explores the historical and continued struggle over um, control over the American ethos and American story following the lived experiences of several notable Americans through the 19th century. I feel like I've spent a lot of time studying and wrapping my head around more modern American recent history. So this has been actually a really great book for expanding my perspective on the 19th century American history. And Colin Woodard is an amazing writer. So I highly recommend this book. It's next on my list. And so, yeah, I, I'm, I'm probably going to start it this weekend because I just, I just finished uh, The Great Leveling which I think we talked about before, which yeah, yes. really, really good. But yeah, that, that one is the next one up on my list and I'm excited. So like next, next time I'm on, we'll chat about that one. Cause I'd like yeah. to get your take. I miss, I must've mistaken. I thought that you had read it already. So I'm, I'm ahead of you on this one. You are, you are. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for talking with me today, Chuck. And thank you everyone for listening to another episode of Upzoned. Keep doing what you can to build a strong town. See you, Chuck. Take care.